Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the practical voice podcast. On this episode of VUX World, we are joined by Sierra Fontana and Carissa Merrill of US Bank, and we are going to be discussing accessibility. It costs 95 times more in time and effort and cost to fix accessibility issues once you're in production than it does to fix them when you're in the design phase. And Sierra and Carissa share with us today all of the things that you can do while you're in the design phase of your voice application to make your voice experience more accessible. We'll find out a little bit more. In fact, we'll find out a lot more about that in this episode of VUX World, which is sponsored by the Conversational Academy. If you are looking for training in how to be a conversational designer it's a question I get asked all the time where can I go to learn how to be a conversation designer and you should start with the conversational academy it's an online course you can do it in your own time it's put together by the good folks at Robocopy it is an absolute expert course you will go from zero to conversation design hero and if you check out the link in the show notes there's a little gift there as well save 10% when you book the course through the link in the show notes thank you very much conversational academy for sponsoring VUX World. Now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, of the US Bank discussing accessibility, Sierra Fontana and Carissa Merrill on VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. Branding with the big faces. I love listening to it. Kane Sims. Kane Sims. Kane Sims, the one and only. Britain's finest, Mr. Kane Sims. Dustin. Dustin. Dustin Coates. I like it when you guys are together and talking about voice. Now, further ado, welcome to the show. Yeah, hey Kane, how's it going today? Very well, very well. I'm just saying there that I am in my... Uh, what, it, what shouldn't be my laundry room, but it kind of is starting to take that shape. It's the kind of like, I call it my studio, but my family call it the guest bedroom. And uh, <laughs> it's doubling up as a, as a laundry room today. <laughs> How are you? In the, in the, good. In the UK, so this is what I'm curious about. I just flew back to the US and my favorite thing about the US is we have dryers. We have a machine that will actually dry our clothes. Do you have that in the UK? Because we don't yeah, in France. Yeah, we do, we do. And we've actually, in a, in a fairly typically contemporary fashion, we have one machine, which is a washer-dryer. So it kind of does both things oh, in one oh. unit, believe it or not. Um, I don't know why we don't use the dryer. I think we just have a habit of hanging stuff all over the house and, <laughs> and getting the whole place humid. I don't know why we don't use the dryer. But yeah, we do kind and of have better one. for the environment, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we, could, we, could spend an, we could spend an hour talking about washer-dryer because I think we're both at that point in our, in our life now. But we have another topic and we have guests today, a topic that I don't think we've actually discussed in depth in the, on the podcast, which is accessibility and voice. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think we might have glossed over it and touched upon it here and there, but never really spent the time to really drill into it. So really looking forward to this. Yeah, and to join us today and to talk about accessibility, we have Carissa and Sierra from US Bank. So welcome. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much for having us. Good to be here. Yeah, so if you don't mind, just start off telling us who are you and who is US Bank? Yeah, um, so I can start. Um, yeah. So my name is Sierra Fontana and I am a UX architect on uh, The Voice Project. I have a background in visual design. So I've been a visual designer for about four or five years prior um, and have spent the last year in the voice space at the bank. Um, Carissa? Yeah. And I'm Carissa Merrill. I'm a senior accessibility consultant at U.S. Bank, and I have been um, with the bank about 18 months on the voice project for about a year or, or no, just, how, under, just yep. under a year. Uh, yeah. And I have a background um, as a UX generalist and then in project management before that. And U.S. Bank, uh, it seems pretty self-explanatory, but maybe what is U.S. Bank doing with voice specifically? Yeah, so right now um, we are on Google and Alexa, um, and we've been playing with voice in the innovation space as well. Um, so yeah, right now the focus is Alexa and, and Google. Um, yeah, we've had some um, products out on the market now, and then now we're kind of just like retouching them. We've released um, a new mobile app um, in, when was it, March, March of this yep. year? So we're kind of just like touching all of the different platforms to see like where we can um, better align with the experiences and kind of have like a dedicated team here in Minneapolis that we've all been working on on a variety of different projects there. Mm -hmm. Cool. And Carissa, so, so you're, 
specific role is an what, senior accessibility consultant, did you say? So so that's your your full-time position in terms of this voice project has been, is to make sure that this is totally accessible. Is that right? Yeah. So basically like what we do at the bank, we're fortunate enough, we have a dedicated accessibility team and which operates as a consultative practice. So I'm going to kind of go a little bit longer of an answer here. So basically what that means is instead of doing accessibility in like QA and development, we, we do what's called shifting it left. So we're moving accessibility into um, the UX design practice. So everything from like the ideation to content management to experience inter- interaction design um, through the visual design and like integrating like those practices and um, considerations into the design systems themselves. So what my role is like with the voice team is basically I am 100% embedded with the team. So I help with, um, I participate in all of like the ideating, the interaction design, especially with my background as an experience architect. So I, you know, really help um, with Sierra um, in that regard, but basically just like I advocate for the users users that aren't in the room. So making sure that we are considering people with motor, cognitive, you know, a variety of disabilities like as we go so that um, all of those issues are taken into consideration and, you know, and especially um, uh, those that are deaf and hard of hearing in the voice realm too. I think that's an important mm-hmm. one uh, to be considerate of. When you think about voice and accessibility, is it that voice is aiding in accessibility or is it that accessibility needs to be taken into account when we build for voice or is it both? I think it's both. You know, the great thing about accessibility is when you design for those outlier use cases, like that's where innovation lands. So we always say like when we talk about the business case for accessibility, you know, like there's always like it's really good optics. I mean, of course, like no one can argue that it is the absolute the right thing to do. And it's an ethical imperative as we move forward with all of this technology that can really like drastically impact people's lives. Like, of course, we would want to positively impact those um, of people's with disabilities because it can be like game changers for them. You know, I remember when um, like iPhones came out with people that are low vision or blind, like that was like with voiceover, that was just an absolute game changer in terms of daily life and independence. Um, And so with voice technology, especially like we've learned so much from um, the accessibility functionality of voice technology. And it would just be foolish, like not to integrate those users into our outline use case. You know, it just goes hand in hand. I mean, for instance, we have like, even just thinking about like podcasts such as this, you can adjust like the reading rate and the speed and with voiceover, you can choose like your um, different voices for like, for instance, I have Samantha and Hans, you can have like different accents based on your, you know, you can have like different Alexa voices, like things of that nature. So it's just like, there's so much customization and so much we've learned from um, designing for people with disabilities that it would be foolish to um, exclude them at this juncture. And to add on to that a little bit too, um, we talk about voice as an emerging technology um, and something that was brought up at the voice summit was uh, Anil Lewis, who is uh, a blind user. He was talking about, you know, using voice technology for 20, 30 years yeah, now. You know, that was, um, it, it kind of, that need came out of, um, uh, designing for um, mm-hmm. disabilities. And so uh, there's a lot of things that, yeah, like Chris mentioned, that we can take from this practice that has been around for um, a while now and try to apply those to to the emerging space of voice, the more mainstream um, products now. Yeah, that's a shout out. So that's Anil. He's from yes. the National Federation of the Blind. Uh, so he was the one that we did the panel um, at the Voice Summit with. Another thing to consider... Um, Shoot, I just lost my train of thought while we were just... Oh, so that's that's another thing to consider too. So when we think about like all of these like outliers and use cases, so again, the thing about having a, a dedicated accessibility consultant, not that you have to. Again, like we're very fortunate in the fact that like we can and do have these people that are integrated and work as consultants to a variety of our teams throughout the bank. Um, but you know, we all we all bring personal bias when we're designing and creating things, whether it's in the voice realm or visual design or whatever whatever it may be. So something to consider is, um, for instance, like speech technology originally was the most effective on like English speaking white men. I mean, now with like ASR, like we've come such a long ways, but like if you think of people with English as a second language or like all of the use cases for voice in terms of testing or rehabilitating, rehabilitating people that have had strokes or people with speech and 
impediments or stutters, like you have to be considerate of all of those things and like really bake that bias in proactively. Because if you don't build data sets that are comprehensive for those outlier cases, you're going to be like doubly excluded from that. So it's just like something to be like incredibly cognizant of. Um, but you know, the thing is like accessibility isn't really necessarily like it's not something as like an addendum. I mean, if you think of usability best practices and even especially with voice technology, like as we move into like these multimodal interfaces, so many platforms are going into, you know, like Alexa has a variety of shows and TVs and Google Home and the Facebook tablet and all of the, you know what I mean? Like there, the multimodality of it is so significant. So in that regard, like you can, um, it's just being cognizant of the fact that like you can have like transcripts, you can have like touch interfaces, you're meeting people wherever they want to be. Um, so like, yes, like voice technology is really great. It like cuts down on all of that friction. You don't have to have like the, the, the navigation, like for instance, for people that are banking, like whether it's, um, someone that's like an older population and they're maybe not used to technology, like accessibility is part of usability. That's where that's I was going. Right, exactly. Bringing it back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. sorry. That was actually the thread that I was going. So it's basically, if you think of like um, some best practices, so if you're thinking about reducing the cognitive load, like that's an accessibility consideration. Good contrast. I mean, like that's great for people that have low vision, but it's also great if you're like in the sun and you're looking at your phone screen and you want to be able to see, you know, same thing with like hands-free, like larger increased font, um, you know, so something like that. So you can see it from two to three feet away. Like accessibility isn't an other. It's just like part of the set of design constraints that you're working with on the day to day. Like I always like to say that accessibility is a solvable design problem because it just should be baked into design. It's not like an outlier thing that you add on to. It's like accessibility is best practices and we just have to be cognizant of baking that in from the jump. And then once people are familiar with that, like they'll be able to recognize that like a lot of those things are really just like it's good usability. And one of the benefits to baking it in is uh, defect remediation. Yeah. And one of the things, Chris, mm -hmm. I'll let you speak to it, um, is kind of that moving it to the left is the cost of catching those kind of issues early and often. Mm -hmm. um, so what is it? Yeah, so the numbers with that, so we always say like if you catch a defect, for instance, like an accessibility issue in like in production, the cost to remediate it at that point is up to 95 times versus if you catch it in the design stage of UX, it's one time. I mean, because we can fix it like right there at that level. So. And you mentioned a few times um, kind of designing for all and kind of accessibility being like it's yes it, it helps people with very particular situations but also it can help the population more broadly like one of the things that almost like it almost frustrated me well in fact it did frustrate me the way it was branded but I can totally see how it was done so the, the Apple voice control iOS voice control I don't know if you've seen it we spoke about it on the last podcast with Braden Ream it's a really really cool feature and they kind of branded it as an accessible feature so it's part of the accessibility of the phone however I've got this stand here that I put my phone on I turn on voice control and whenever I'm in the office my phone's on that stand and I use the voice control on my phone to, to, to use my phone basically so 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 when you're thinking about designing and you mentioned baking in accessibility from the beginning a few times are you thinking about okay here's a project that we have here's a use case that we're aiming for here's what the design is and now let's then focus on these particular accessibility needs so do you focus on the accessibility need and serving those or do you focus it on a, on a broad level and think let's just try and make this as accessible as we can do you think are you approaching it from a really broad level in terms of let's just make this as accessible as we can or do you focus on very specific accessibility needs and, and really hone in on, on those specifics yeah, I guess I think that we go from a more of a higher level um, that we're not we're not looking at a specific use case usually to start. It is more of the most common use cases. And then um, uh, it really comes back to testing. And one of the things is uh, Carissa has kind of brought um, inclusive testing to be the voice being one of the first projects that's done at the bank, where when we're building things, we are making sure that we're testing them um, with with uh, different disabilities. And I think another thing that Noah had pointed out from the voice summit was that um, in a lot of cases, you know, people will say, I I've tested it on one blind person. So I've, I've, I know what the blind community must uh, think when they are using this. And his whole point was like that in the same way, there is a lot of different um, 
different ways of looking at the same thing. So if if your one blind user, you know, loves it, that doesn't mean every blind user does. And yeah. so just like don't group of people is not monolithic, right? Exactly. So, like you want like a diverse group of users in in every sense of the word. Absolutely. Where like one person cannot be, you know, like a total token representation of like an entire de- demographic of people. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be the kind of the case with accessibility yeah. in a lot of places where they're like, oh we, you know, we did it with the one um the blind or the deaf user. So we've kind of checked that off of the yeah. list where um his reminder was just to be cognizant that, you know, there's just as much diversity in each group. Absolutely. Um, and just to be aware of that. And so. technical acuity and diverse age range. You know, you have to think that like people with disabilities that are young and growing up now, I mean like they haven't haven't experienced techno, you know, like life without all of the technology that we have now, and even more so, like going forward. And then conversely, the same way as like our population, our the general population ages, those users with disabilities uh, might be less tech savvy. Or like conversely, we might have like people that are, you know, the baby boomers that are aging up that are just getting into the accessibility features of of their iPhone, whether it's like resizing like their text or I guess I shouldn't say iPhone, I guess like any of their devices. Yeah. But kind of circling back to your question too. So we do really, we try to have like a very comprehensive, broad um, approach to accessibility in the terms of like, we are very cognizant. We have a really great team. That's like super, super amazing. Like Sierra has done, um, a ton of independent research and she's like really great about like finding and scrolling out like some of those like particular use cases, like as we do it in terms of like interaction, what the, what the functionality will be and finding like other, those other use cases or multiple ways of doing things. We have Deb Bida who is, um, on our team and Marcy Hill, who like they've been doing a lot for uh, accessibility in terms of like the content and conversation design, you know, and, and even our, our visual designers too. Um, we have Michael Larson and Mark Softich, like they've really like, it's like, it's a whole team effort, but basically like each of our different disciplines has been able to kind of like suss out, like what are the things or like the low hanging fruit that I need to address and like this, um, in this particular like segment, but then we also have things that are like overarching. For instance, as we started going into like, kind of like, how do we want things to animate or what does that look like? You know, like, is that a situation where we can refer to your device settings and kind of disable animation? What does that look like? Are we just crossfading things in, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like, we have like a really broad focus, but then as we kind of like noodle some things out, we kind of figure out more things that we can like specifically dive into, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And two, one thing I just want to point out is that when we started this project, you know, we were like, well, what are people going to ask this thing? Like, what would you, you know, <laughs> so we're, we're thinking about all the different things that it, it might be. And so we did a little test uh, in, in the bank and we walked around to a lot of different people and, you know, we're like, if you could ask it anything, like, what would it be? And what's my balance kind of kept coming up over and over again. But then we asked um, one of um, our accessibility consultants, um, Abby, who is uh, blind and she, oh man, she just rattled off all the things yes. she could do with it. You know, we talked, there's like this barrier to entry um, to getting people to use the voice. But I mean, with somebody who is blind, this can be life changing, you know? Yeah. So like the things that she went, that she would ask it and tell it, it was, it was like, you know, we could, there's a lot of things that we could use from that to see, you know, how people might, be interacting with this in the future. Um, yeah, so that was really good insight, especially yeah, blind and low vision users. Talk about early adopters. Exactly. Like they, they have been on this technology for from the jump. Yeah, have that, and they have opinions. Exactly. On right. People, yeah, so, uh, and they've used all of them and have explored and know all of like the intricacies of like yeah. Yep. You know, and talk about, yeah, uh, the insights into like cognitive load and like how things should go and like all of that. Like it's like incredibly insightful and instrumental in terms of like how we approach our design processes. If you don't have someone on your team, a, a colleague who is within a certain population and you want to make sure and support, when is the right time to bring those people in? Early and often. <laughs> I mean, frankly, like that's something that we're working on ramping up. So as Sierra said, like we've been fortunate enough, like we've kind of started doing our usability testing and inclusive uh, research practices with our team. Well, we'll actually be doing coming up here in December, we'll be doing um, ethnographic diary studies in homes, um, including people with disabilities. Um, but basically, like that's just it. Like we have an amazing, amazing partnership with our uh, research team here with in the bank. So we've kind of started bringing the, bringing in 
considerations from everything from like building out with personas. So for instance, if we have, you know, and it can be, again, like this can be like, there's such a diversity too, you know, and when we talk about disabilities, it's, it's, it's permanent. There's also temporary disabilities where, you know, like if you break your leg or break your arm or, or you know what I mean? Like you have your tooth out and you like can't, speak clearly for a bit or even like situational, like your hands are full, like things like that. So we've started like baking that into like our personas. So if we have like an ESL person is one of our personas or perhaps someone that's like an, in an aging demographic and they have like low vision or hearing loss. So you, you bake it in from um, like that point. And then as you do like secondary and primary, primary research, we try to have like inclusive data sets for that as well. So that any time that we're having touch points, like we're having considerations from that, whether it's gorilla testing or what have you. Yep. And how do you kind of, so, I mean, it sounds as though you, you kind of, the whole team works quite closely together and you know, it's, it's like the, the kind of, I say age old said, it's only because I've been focusing on accessibility for websites for the past two years. So it's kind of like the thing is, is often said that it's a team sport and it should be a team effort. So, Carissa, do you see kind of your role as almost being one of being there to kind of support and make sure that this is considered and have the whole team kind of get behind it to eventually then step away and leave them to it? Or do you think that each team needs somebody who is kind of like wearing the accessibility hat and it's and who kind of like owns it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I think... You know, in an ideal world, like I, there wouldn't be a job for me. Right. I mean, like that would be it. And like, frankly, like I'm so fortunate to work with such amazing teams and uh, teammates specifically like with this one now where everyone has really like taken that up taken that upon themselves to really integrate accessibility best practices um, into their discipline. Uh, the thing that's great about like me and my experience like right now is like with my background of being an XA, like I'm able to kind of like diversify like my experience like through through that as well so like I can kind of jump in and help Sierra with like XA things we can talk about like what that impact is for accessibility so it's like kind of like I absolutely carry the torch for the users that aren't in the room but my team does a really great job of like advocating for that as well if anything I'm there to help um, enable them educate them provide resources or additional research whenever like we kind of run up against something because again like especially with voice technology I mean and especially with for instance, like we have the Banker WCAG 2.0 AA compliant. So that's the web content accessibility guidelines if people aren't familiar. But basically, like that being said, so there are some that are very like hard and fast rules there. So like in terms of like color contrast, but then there are some things that are more subjective. And those, in those cases, like it's kind of my job to kind of like suss out like what is the nuance of that? Like how does that play? What do we need more research about? If we're going to diverge or go away from that in like some some way or regard it has to be like incredibly well validated and researched and like there has to be like some sort of like reason to facilitate that like not that not that we would but you know just like kind of like sussing out all of those details so my role is kind of like not only to like educate like accessibility champions which we call them which Sierra is most assuredly one of those um, within the team but also just to kind of like provide like uh, additional resources and support and not only for like our immediate creative team but additionally like working with developers like if we if QA has questions in terms of like you know as we ramp up like our practice you know like what does that mean when we're doing like uh, the QA testing? What does that mean when we're coding excessively? You know, like, are we sure that we're, you know, like adding appropriate labels, but not like being like overly verbose? I mean, there's often the times when like people get into accessibility. And frankly, I think like the threshold for accessibility is just like a lack of awareness or a lack of education in a lot of these programs that go out there. Um, so I think it's really just like enabling people and showing like there are all of these resources, but then also being able to have like a calculated, like scaling it back and also knowing, reminding gently that like, again, this is designing like nothing without them, about them without them. Just basically saying that like there are sometimes the case where like people can be like incredibly eager to make things as accessible as possible. And then they kind of get... I think Anil used this really great example of like where basically there was someone was talking with um, like a low vision or a blind user about like the difficulty of going into un unfamiliar restrooms. Mm -hmm. And he used the case of like someone was like, oh, I'm going to make you the most accessible, accessible bathroom. And like it was just like this really like beautifully considered and like really like 
thoughtful thing, but it ended up being like completely unusable for anyone except that one person, because it's like, now you're excluding like a whole other group of people. And you made it for that one person rather than for like people as a whole. So I think like my job is also to kind of like gently remind and rein in that, like, as we're designing for like all of these use cases and, and for those outliers that we really can't make design decisions without the people that are most affected by this, you know? So it's like my, my job is really beautiful and wonderful in the fact that I get to work in a variety of different ways and a variety of different avenues um, with beautiful people who care a lot about things. Because voice is an emerging technology, I don't see Carissa going away at any time soon. I think that there is so much unknown in this space that we really do need our guidance um, as much as possible. And I mean, who knows, maybe maybe in the future, but I don't see it anytime soon. Well, I think that's that's an interesting um, an interesting thing to consider because, I mean, that's the, you're probably the first example I've seen of somebody who's being put in place specifically to fly that accessibility torch and you know with voice being an emerging technology you know we're seeing sometimes it's design teams who have no prior experience with voice that end up kind of landing a, a voice project if it's a big agency or an in-house kind of uh, company other times it's you know maybe it's hobbyists or kind of smaller teams and they, they might have experience with voice design and development maybe accessibility might be kind of new to them so i'm just wondering whether there is anything that we that you might be able to share for teams that don't have their own carissa who who might still <laughs> want to, who might still want to kind of like uh you know take this on board and so I suppose the question is do you think that it is a good idea for there to be a person who kind of owns it and flies that flag or do you think that it's a good good enough route to say it's everyone's responsibility and everyone has a part to play and everyone needs to contribute as far as accessibility is concerned can oh, I, yeah, I start with saying that I think that, um, you know, uh, in school, like going as far as graphic uh, design, um, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of talk about accessibility, at least. I mean, that was five years ago for me. Um, and so what's interesting is, I guess I learned a lot about it after I graduated and getting into the practice. And I knew it was something that we should be doing and, um, and that I wanted to work on. But I guess it seemed like the tools and the resources just weren't out there um, until until I got this project and started working with Carissa. And it's been um, very inspirational. But I think that it, it really comes down to a lot of people just not having the time or resources or it kind of always being an afterthought. I think that's kind of the method that we usually incorporate accessibility is kind of at the end as a checklist to say, you know, did we, did we do it or not? Where um, bringing her in early and often kind of is a game changer. Yeah, and I guess um, to Sierra's point, I would just reiterate that. Um, I think that absolutely that the responsibility for accessibility lives in everyone. And again, um, like Sierra just said, and like I, I briefly mentioned earlier, is I don't think it's like a, you know, like a conscious thing that people are cutting out. I think right. it is a lack of awareness right. and a lack of resources. And frankly, I didn't know about accessibility until I was several years into my, you know, like UX practice. And then it came out basically from like a collaboration session with um, an aging demographic in which I really, I think, and that's the other thing too, that's important is like really being able to put faces faces to like these experiences and seeing how it really impacts people on the daily. Because like, when you think like, Oh, like we're not going to put accessibility into this, just like for this, like whatever that means. And it's like, really, it's just like, it's usability. So it's good for everybody. But then also when you see someone who is like blind or low vision and they're navigating through something that like the buttons aren't labeled or like whatever, like that experience is, and they can't even participate or interact with that. I mean, like it, it's just, it's really exciting to see when you get to like enable people and reduce those barriers and reduce that friction because again, it not only benefits everyone, but like it absolutely changes people's lives and gives like newfound independence for people that, you know, really should have it. I mean, if anything, you know, as we advance like with technology and innovative technology, especially it's like, you know, this should be a great democratizer and it should be treated as such and everyone should have access to it. And so the thing is like, I don't think you need, you don't need me or anyone dedicated to your team. I mean, there's a lot of resources out there. I would be happy to share some if you wanted to post them on uh, your website. But I mean, for whatever, like whatever your practice is, and then even for like some of the platforms, like Alexa, I know has like a really robust documentation for accessibility. And a lot of people might not realize that those are, those are very closely tied to, if not, I mean, I have gone through and like done a one-to-one comparison, but it's 
um, it's based on WCAG, right? So when they talk about like the buttons and the controls and like the labeling and all of that stuff, and even like the color contrast, those are all pulled from the web content accessibility guidelines. So if you're following like those best practices, again, that's not like some like wild and crazy thing. It's just usability. It's usability best practices. And it happens to be really important for accessibility as well. And so again, like I would just say, like not considering like accessibility as other, but really incorporating accessibility as usability best practices. Anyone can do it at any level. And frankly, it's better to just start now, even if you're not like super well-versed and you think like, I'm going to focus on like the cognitive load of my conversation design and making sure that this is like really easily understandable. It's not confusing. We're not using jargon, et cetera. Like there are very simple like checklists that you can do that anyone can do. Um, you know, for interaction designers, like it's as simple as, you know, like if you have like a multi, uh, like a multimodal um, interface, you know, like having like clearly articulated like buttons and labels and things of that nature. So, I mean, there's a bunch of things that you can do on a variety of scales. Um, and then there are, you know, plenty of opportunities for additional research if you want to get into the nitty gritty of something more specific too. You've mentioned a number of times that accessibility is usability. There's an ethical imperative, but might there even be a legal imperative for certain industries? <laughs> So as, um, yeah, I mean, frankly, like that is one of the biggest things. I don't know if you guys have been following the news at all, at least like in the U.S. So, um, or really this ties to a lot of things. So recently we just spoke at uh, World Usability Day, which like their whole whole uh, theme this year was designing for the future that we want and kind of like what we t what they talk about there in terms of like their global UN goals is kind of having um, it's uh, their goal 10 is reducing inequalities and by doing that through like um, policy processes and practice is kind of like how I interpreted it and refined it. So in terms of like policy, there's like the Domino's, the national US case um, in which Domino's was just sued by a blind user because he wasn't able to order on either their app or their website, I believe. It was upheld in um, the state court um, and then went to the Supreme Court where the Domino's was still fighting it and it was upheld and returned back to the state court decision. So basically saying that like, again, like everything it has to be a one-to-one -one experience. So anything that an able-bodied person can do, like anyone should be able to do, regardless of their disability, regardless of which way they decide to use it, whether it's with the switch control, voice control, keyboard, or, you know, a mouse control. So, um, like, there is, a, there is a legal imperative to doing it as well, because, you know, talk about like that. And that actually refers to when we were talking about defect remediation, the 95 times is like what it costs to remediate something like if there is a legal action taken on your product or service. So mm. I know there's the, I think that, uh, no, sorry, sorry. Go on, no, I was just gonna say, I think that, uh, I read somewhere that, um, lawsuits for accessibility specifically are up like 400% yeah. in the past year alone. Yep. Um, so it's definitely making its way into the limelight. There's and certainly also, not going away. No, no, no. no there's, there's, there's an EU accessibility directive. I don't know if you've come across that, which essentially it says that any, I think it's specifically for, for like the government. So central government, uh, local kind of governments, which I think in your case is like municipalities and stuff. There, there, is, there is a legal requirement for all of those government websites to be accessible at least i think double a compliant by either either the september just gone or next september i can't remember which one it is but essentially yeah it's, it's become i'm sure i'm pretty sure it's eu but eu wide is that the case in in france as well dustin do you know i don't know exactly but i would i would assume so if it's an eu directive i think it's an eu directive i, th I don't think i'm making that up it's definitely happening in the uk i'm, I'm assuming it's an eu thing yeah, yeah absolutely the other thing that's interesting too is like for instance california like here in the states they've gone above and beyond of like what like um like section 508 is and they have even more judicious and strict accessibility guidelines for the state of california and that that um applies to anyone that operates within that. So even if you're a national or international business, you still have to comply with those, um, with those standards as well. So I think like that's a really interesting that's thing because big, yeah. yeah, I think California leads the way in a lot of things yep. and that's just another thing like they're pushing, pushing the note. And so like, uh, for instance, like we at the bank, you know, operating in California would also have to adhere to those rules too. 
What are some of the example use cases that the US bank has in the kind of voice kind of environment? So what kind of voice use cases have you kind of created over the last period? And then as a secondary question to that, what accessibility considerations went into some of those? I'm just wondering if you can give us a flavour for, first of all, what you've done and then the accessibility requirements of of those use cases. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think what's my balance was one of them. <laughs> <Sorry, laughs> yeah. Because of all the, uh, all the people asking for it. Um, some other ones, uh, transferring money. Yep. Um, let's see. Zelle payments. Um, account routing number. Um, so kind of some basic stuff still at this mm-hmm. point. Um, cause we knew, we know that, you know, voice alone has some kind of limitations. Um, and I mean, with banking too, it's, that's an interesting space to be in, in the voice. Uh, we talk a lot about like privacy and security are the biggest concerns, um, that we're hearing from people. And so that's a lot of kind of what we're taking into consideration as we're designing is that, um, banking is a very private thing and uh smart speakers are a little less private than you know some people might like um so that's kind of been one of our our big use cases is privacy and security and as far as accessibility goes um to build off that yeah i mean i think we focus the big one with uh like voice technology i mean once you get aside i mean so the First off, there are some things that are like baked in like from the jump, right? So when we think about like anytime we have voice technology is like you have to have um, like a transcript or like a text equivalent for the people that are hard of hearing or deaf. So that's like a super easy one, but that kind of like blankets across the whole experience. Another one that's kind of in the same boat is uh, cognitive consideration. So again, when we're thinking about those turn by turn, especially when you're dealing with complex information. So focusing on like the order of information for best comprehension kind of especially when we're talking about like comparing things like there are sometimes it's better to have like a visual I think like Sierra has some really interesting statistics about um, kind of having like a text only voice only and then a multimodal combined in terms of like uh, typing speaking comprehension um, that she can elucidate you on Um, but otherwise it's really I mean like I said like we really kind of like bake it in to the whole experience. So it's everything from like, if we are going to have like a multimodal experience, so having those considerations for like color contrast, like simple interfaces, like um, having properly sized or like large enough, like touch targets, things of that nature. Um, Again, in development, like making sure that that things are properly labeled, that there is like hint or help text, if there is additional functionality, Um, just making sure that you know, I, I mean, a lot of it, you know, like we're being, being voice forward, a lot of it does come down to like the whole like conversational experience as a whole. But yeah, I'll let Sierra tell you like those, uh, just like the stats about like how, yeah, what, can, what that impact is. We talk a lot about voice being a really good um, method for input and how it is so much faster to talk um, as far as searching goes instead of um, uh, key it in. And so one of the things was that, uh, that we picked up from the voice summit was that um, you can type at 40 words per minute on average. Uh, you can speak at about 130 words per minute, um, but you can scan and read with your eyes at 250 words per minute. So when we're in a voice only channel, um, and especially with, like you said, kind of complex uh, banking information or legal disclosures, or you know, nobody wants to sit and have to hear all that read out to them, um, that if you can um, send a message or you know, kind of pick it up in a different channel that carries that weight a little bit better or more elegantly, um, that you're probably better off. I, the example that they used to kind of drive it home was uh, for voicemails. When you started getting transcriptions attached uh, to your voicemails, when was the last time you went in and listened to the entire thing as opposed to go read the transcripts to see if it's something you, you even need to pay attention to? And so, um, you know, by, by voice only as an input, um, I think this goes back to multimodality and that being the sweet spot is that um, with voice only, there are definitely limitations. Um, and so kind of just, you know, using the different channels as an ecosystem to be able to flex depending on whatever the task it is that you're trying to, to do or the user, I'm sorry, is trying, trying to do. 
say, and just to reiterate, um, you know, like as Sierra has talked about, and like as we are kind of like diversifying our experience too, like with the bank, and like so many people are out there. You know, you have these platforms of like Google and Alexa, and then you know, like we have like the bank app on our phone, and then there's also like all of these different points of contact. I think the really important thing to remember, like not only for accessibility of people with disabilities, but general again accessibility of information for all people and general usability, is to really diversify those channels and. Have having like touch points and whether it's like multiple voice forward touch points as well, but like recognizing like where do those experiences with those customers lie? Where is the best channel to reach them that has like the best comprehension and the best retention, the best way to like, if I'm getting my, my terms and conditions, I want to be able to get that here. If I'm applying for something, I want to be able to do that here. If I just want to check my balance or send money, like I want to be able to do that here. And again, kind of like diversifying like your ecosystem, like across the board and meeting people where they are. I think that's like one of like the biggest takeaways is just like meet your users, all of your users, like wherever they are and however they want to interact um, and just being um, open and down with that. Do you feel like working at such a large company like U.S. Bank has been a help for you when taking voice to accessibility? Or do you think because this is a new technology, it's actually been a little bit more difficult for you? I mean, you know, that is a good question. I think it kind of depends on like how you view it. For me, again, like I said, like I see accessibility as part of my UX practice, as part of like, uh, as part of information and interaction architecture. Um, And it's just like fully integrated into the process. And again, like voice technology is new for the mainstream, but voice technology for people with disabilities has been here for decades. Um, And so I think that it, it really just depends on like what you're, how you mentally approach it. And I guess for me, like for me, no, it hasn't been hard. And if anything, like I find it like incredibly exciting and incredibly invigorating to be in this technology in this space where like, you know, Wikig is like a really great resource and they've been around for like a very long time, but it takes them, it's a big consortium and it takes many years to get like new regulations um, and specific rules out there. So I think it's a really exciting time and where we have this great new technology where we get to help um, do like the next generation of like accessibility and best practices and what that means in terms of um, voice forward accessibility that's still like an incredibly robust, really beautiful whole new experience um, that's kind of like built off of the predecessing knowledge that we've had in accessibility. Mm-hmm. Kind of lost my tangent on that one, but you know, you get the idea. <laughs> kind of like I get on the thought and I'm just like, woo, there we go. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is it um so I think I think correct me if I'm wrong, but what you were getting at is that you envisage the standards for the kind of like WCAG, WCAG or whatever however you pronounce it, the W A C G sort of standards maybe will kind of advance as we learn more about these different technologies and move away from specifically kind of like text on a web page into more conversational channels and stuff. Is there anything that you've learned from uh, from the testing that you've done, from the research that you've done, from the things that you've created for US Bank? Is there any any signs of that? happening is there any things in particular that you think are accessibility benefits or any techniques that you've used to improve the accessibility of the voice channel that is maybe a, what you would call a, either not necessarily a what could be a new standard but any things that you've noticed that any kind of like tricks or, or techniques that you've noticed that you can do that people can kind of use to improve the accessibility of their voice applications yeah I think that's a great question. I mean, there are a few things come to mind. Um, I'm kind of going to circle back and say that like one of the things that's so great about like being at the bank and being able to explore that is the fact that we do have the resources and the research and we can do inclusive research um, that validates a lot of these questions that we have. But the other thing to remember is that Um, WCAG, we kind of approach it more as like, it's more of like accessibility guidelines. And when we say like web content, we think of it more as like digital accessibility guidelines. So for instance, while a lot of WCAG's guidelines might be more um, visual affordances, you know, even Alexa has like a variety of different platforms and things where there are still like visual design aspects. So all of those things are like a direct 
one-to-one -one translation in terms of what those experiences are. Um, some things that we can like learn from and leverage in terms of like the visual design as well as like the conversation design. I mean, some of the things that we've talked about, like even just using like really large text or like simply re or repeating things or like having like the, the live transcribe options um, and kind of like the multimodality in terms of like allowing people multiple ways. I think like that's one of the big ones that we, we really stress and try to harness like as we approach a design, because not only are people using voice technology alone, but like they might, you know, like for instance, like I have a show here, like I might like dismiss or confirm or do something like with like the visual interface itself. And so just allowing users to kind of go back and forth and remember that when you're like making something accessible by having multiple ways to do something, whether it's not just gesture based, but there is also a button or whether it's not just a voice channel, but there is also, you know, like the, the, visual design as well that you can lean on. It's like all of those things are accessibility considerations, but again, like they make the, they make the practice of voice forward technology as well as the experience for voice technology users better. And I think too, kind of something I mentioned was the use cases and just being able to, I mean, sometimes it's hard, you know, to get from users what it is that they might do with, some, with something that is still kind of in the innovative space because they just don't know, you know, they haven't put that kind of, time and thought um, into it where um, as soon as we started talking to Abby, you know, who's somebody who, who needs this um, more than a, more than most of our other users, like to listen to what she said she would do with it. I mean, it kind of opens up your eyes to like, wow, there is, you know, we didn't even think about this space or, um, you know, that's even more reason to go here first. Or um, so I think really just asking those questions to the people who um, would benefit the most from it is, was really eye opening. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess like for some like tangible takeaways, I mean like having text equivalents for things, having like either a caption or transcript options, having again, like if you do have a visual interface, like clear, distinct, um, unique labels for buttons. Um, if you do have like animation or things like that, having options to disable, having customized uh, voice, uh, whether it's speed, choosing the voice itself or et cetera, things of that for like playback. Um, in terms of like cog cognition, I mean, again, like all of the best practices for usability for like conversation design, a lot of those are stemmed from accessibility, right? So just in terms of like the reading level, like having um, a lower, like I think we at the bank like go to like a fifth or eighth grade reading level yep. and then there are tools that you can use that you can run like your, your scripts through um, reducing the jargon. I know like bank yes. speaks, oh my <laughs> God, I think the first like week I started at the bank, like all I did was like make a glossary. Yeah, like, what are all of these <laughs> acronyms? Who are these people? <laughs> you know? So it's like so really focusing on like if you're going to use an acronym, make sure you state it first and like tell the user that this is what we're doing. And when we refer to this, this is the acronym. And like you know, using plain speak, especially for like voice and conversation design, the order in which like you list information like if you're going to answer a question answer the question like we don't need to hear you know like this that and the other thing about like what it is it's like you know here is the question here is the answer any subsidiary information you know like there's a logical order for all of that and kind of like those like cognitive considerations again based in accessibility but again usability best practices for everyone in the voice design field is there anything the platforms can do to improve accessibility is there anything that you've kind of that you haven't been able to do anything about because you can build the features that you need for the app but actually there's you need a bit more from the platforms is there any any scope for the apples the googles the amazons is there anything that they think that you think they can do to improve accessibility Ooh, wow. yeah, yeah. Fire. how exciting <laughs> like how many enemies do you have? no i'm just kidding uh so i think so First of all, let me say that like these larger players are doing a really great job in terms of the research and the advocacy uh, for accessibility features. I know, for instance, like, gosh, I mean, Microsoft, Google, Alexa, like they've all done a really great job in terms of like Alexa has like a very robust set of accessibility features. I know Google does a lot of like their own independent research. They have a really great like live transcribe. And there are things that are like you can plug and play within those different things. A lot of things are a lot of capabilities are features that they build on. One of my personal pet things, and I'm not like throwing any shade or calling anyone out, but one thing that like I personally would really, really, really love to see, and I know that we're so close and I know everyone is actively working on it, but is ASR, like the speech recognition. 
I wish there was an easier way, and perhaps I'm just like ignorant of it. If anyone can let me know, please do, of building in atypical speech patterns. So people with lists, people with stutters, people with um, English as a second language, people that have, are stroke victims or have, you know what I mean? Or, you know, kids, kids are clear. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Even like the distinction of like distinguishing like voice, you know, different voice users. But I think like if we could, you know, like that's one of like my very like lovely little pet projects is like, I wish we could kind of like bake that in and put in those atypical utterances into platforms in order to like kind of hard code like something as it expands. I mean, I know that like, the speech recognition now is like, like what, 96 or 98%, but like that all depends on like your audio quality and how well you enunciate. And like, mm. Have you come I mean, across I just think that there's it? a lot of different uses. Yeah. Have you come yeah. across Voice It before? No. Voice It? Voice It, yeah. We've had them on the podcast, haven't we, Justin, last year? Sarah, I think, was yeah. it Sarah Smolly from, from Voice It? Um, essentially, that's that's exactly what it does. It, it kind of... Ooh, it's, it's, intrigued me. Yeah, it's like for people with, with, I think they call it non-typical speech, which is people who've mm-hmm. had a stroke or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, you can train your voice through Voice It and then you can use it to... Basically, it's a, it's an ASR okay. for for people with non typical speech. And funnily oh, enough, yeah. funnily enough, they were in the Alexa Accelerator program last year. So Amazon know about them, uh, know about this company. Ooh. But uh, okay. it sounds as exactly what you're describing would be if Amazon yeah. acquired <laughs> Voice It and put it into the Alexa platform. Yeah. That would pretty much solve that. And like I said, I know there are people working on it. And even so, too, there's like Alexa, I know they were working on, um, they do a lot of like with their innovation labs and even Microsoft does some like really great things too in in recognizing and translating uh, American Sign Language too. I think like that's super fascinating. It's not like, it's not incredibly robust at the moment, but like that being said, I think like the potential there and just like having like interaction in terms of like different types of voice. Like if my voice is like communicating with my hands, I mean, I think that just kind of like broadening the scope and understanding of, because the thing that, the thing that I think is really compelling about like voice technology as a whole is like, it's really, we're really flexing artificial intelligence is like ultimately like the root of it. Right. So like, yes, it is a voice channel, but there are usually multiple ways that we can interact with it, whether it's an app or whether it's, you know, like something else. But I think the important thing to remember is that, like, you can be voice forward, you can be accessible, but there should be multiple ways of doing anything and that you're really flexing like that artificial intelligence for people to use across all spectrums of life. Great. Well, I think we're just about out of time, but if people want to learn more, if you want to find out more about you, where can they find you online? You can hit us up. We're on LinkedIn. I am a really horrible Twitter user, but if you message me, Sam, I use Twitter for mostly a reading list, but I would very happily love to be more engaged there. But um, yeah, so feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn, Twitter, same for Sierra. Um, yeah, we would love to engage and meet more people and talk about things or share additional resources, stories, if there's anything that you guys can tell us that we would love to know. I'm sure we'd appreciate it. And anything that we can share, we're an open book. Thanks so much for having us, guys. This was so fun. I'm sorry we rambled. Thank you so much. This was both fascinating, but I also think it's going to be very practical as well. So thank you again so much. Yes. 100%. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much.